I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. St. Laurent is one of those grapes that you don't hear about too often, and examples are usually presented like rare tastes of a unique world. Fringe as it might be in the U.S. market, it is quite popular in Slovakia and the Czech Republic, and it's seeing a resurgence in Germany and also becoming more popular in Austria. Austria is widely considered to be the birthplace of St. Laurent, and in the country, St. Laurent is the fifth most widely planted red grape. Its importance is even greater considering that Zweigelt is the number one most widely planted red grape. One of Zweigelt's genetic parents is St. Laurent. One theory for St. Laurent's namesake is that the variety is named after, you guessed it, a historic figure named, wait for it, St. Laurent, known in many languages as Sanct Laurent, St. Laurent, San Lorenzo, St. Laurentius, St. Lawrence, and on and on. St. Laurentius the person was an interesting deacon who served as the papal treasurer. But when the Romans came to seize the treasures, he split them up, gave much of it to the poor, and sent away relics in all different directions. The most famous relic supposed to be among his dispersion? The Holy Grail. He hid that one especially well. When the Romans came to collect the gold, he presented them instead with a crowd of people made up of the blind, poor, and sick, and told them that these were the true treasures. You can probably imagine that the Romans were not happy. In fact, they were so angry that they, and this is pretty gross, but it's true, they cooked him alive on a large grill. The method of his martyrdom led him to become the patron saint of chefs and cooks. His Saint's Day falls right around the time when the grape variety St. Laurent begins to ripen. And this all ties into the etymology theory for St. Laurent's namesake. St. Laurent can make rich and dark soft red wines with subtle power, and it can also make deep-hued brighter reds with a little spiciness to it. You'll find some plantings of the grape outside of its ground zero in Europe. It grows as far away as Marlborough, New Zealand, and you can also find interesting domestic St. Laurent right in our own backyard of California. It's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine. And that's where Offset is an incredible asset. Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries on a human level to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in wine country and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design, developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content, as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, Offset Commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Sleep, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. Reach out to the brilliant team at Offset at 
offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T partners with an S.com. Offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand. Michael Cruz of the Cruz Wine Company and Ultramarine on the show. Hello, sir. How are you? Very well. Thanks for having me. Nice to see you. Nice to see you. So where'd you grow up? I grew up in San Francisco and then uh, moved up to Petaluma when I was, I don't know, 10, 11, something like that. What was the family life like? Very laid back, blue collar. We've been in the city for a few generations, so pretty connected. A lot of people living close to us and uh, things like that. What was the Petaluma scene like when you were growing up? Pretty rural. Petaluma's always had a little bit of Marin in it, but uh, it was still pretty much a dairy town and uh, still to some extent is, I think. What was your first job? Working at IHOP. How was uh, that? That was great. It was amazing. <laughs> uh, a lot of uh, dealing with uh, different egg orders and pancakes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, a lot of tips on Sundays. and uh, A lot of coffee refills. A lot of coffee refills. Yeah, exactly. Uh, basted eggs over easy, you know. A lot of so. interest in the different flavors of maple syrup. Absolutely. Oh, exactly. is that the blueberry one? I didn't yeah. try that one yet. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Rudy Tootie Fresh and Fruity, man. Just just making it happen. Eggs um, over my hammy. Eggs over Miami. That's Denny's. How dare you? <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. I feel so bad now. <laughs> um, I'm super embarrassed that I knew that. But yeah, no, it was, uh, it was good times. Uh, it was a very funny. Uh, I think I was the youngest guy there and uh, a lot of sort of let's say more truck stop crowd kind of you were into the service thing uh yeah i was into the job thing i was into the uh getting cash thing <laughs> <laughs> and where'd you go to school i went to the the local catholic school and then uh went to went to cal afterwards cal uh, berkeley yep at uc berkeley and uh majored in biochem there why did you choose science i've always been into it for sure and um i I guess there were some thoughts of being a doctor at some point, but once I kind of got some experience in the lab, I, I, I was 100% on board with that. Working as a scientist in the lab. You were, yeah, you were definitely. Digging it. Yeah, I, was, I, I thought it was my first job that I actually was like, oh, a job where you're doing something that you actually like doing. That's, that's pretty amazing. <laughs> what did you like about it? Um, being left alone? <laughs> no, uh, I think the... I like the creativity of science, truthfully. Like, I think that the idea of... You have a question that you're trying to ask, and you have essentially an infinite way to answer it. And that's kind of been the real interest for me is it's sort of silly to talk about science as creative, but, but it, I found it very creative. That was a big part of my, my interest in doing it, for sure. So you're in the lab, and when did the wine side come along? Um, not till much later. <laughs> so I graduated, and I thought that I wanted to continue that. So I worked a little bit after graduation at Cal, worked at UCSF a little bit and kind of had a bad experience there and sort of realized I was getting married or was close to getting married. My wife was already a scientist and that maybe having two scientists trying to look for a job was kind of going to be hard. And I think kind of growing up in the Bay Area, wine has already been around. So um, I wanted to try that, honestly, the idea of like making something rather than just sort of writing papers or something that was really interesting to me. Did you meet anybody along the way that seemed like a wine person? Terry Layton was a uh, professor of mine, both at some of the later classes, and then also I was in a um, freshman seminar class where he sort of presented um, what he was doing on the wine side. Because he had Kalen. Right. And, and I don't know the exact dates for when he did, but it, it certainly was by the early 90s, maybe even late 80s. I honestly don't know. But um, he presented in a freshman seminar that was on wine. And, uh, so he presented to a science class about, yeah, about his wine. Thing. Totally. But he was also kind of a science background. Yeah. He was a yeast geneticist. He's retired now, but he, he was a yeast geneticist. And, um, you know, for me at the time, I didn't think much of it other than to sort of think, Oh, here's a guy that's doing science. that's also into wine. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I feel like I owe him an email thanking him kind of, <laughs> but, uh, it got the ball rolling a little bit. A little bit. At least at least it sort of uh, piqued the interest on some level. Yeah. 
So you get out of school and what happens? So I applied to UC Davis. Um, so this was post, UC stuff was post-graduation. Um, applied to UC Davis for their master's program and um, got in, but sort of thought, well, maybe I should work a little bit. So I got a job at uh, Sutter Home, working in the lab there. How did that come about? You know, I honestly don't remember. I, I wanted to do something before school just to kind of experience the production side a little bit. And I enjoyed the work a lot. <laughs> um, what was the work working? It was on? it was just lab stuff. Honestly, it was more. Um, so what's that mean for someone right? Who's never so done it? so for someone of that size, it's sort of all the basic analyses that you would do, and then I was sort of also involved in sort of their micro program and QC and things like that. And then a little bit on, um, are you doing scientist terms right now? <laughs> yeah. Right. Is that, is that quality control? Right. QC? Right. Quality control. Sorry. Yeah. Right. So, um, the microbiology side and of, cause of, I, I used to, to buy products off the QC channel. There you, you go. Know? Yeah. 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 It was right between fine living and, uh, right. You know. Right. You got some really nice diamonds from them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it came with a set of steak knives and I couldn't figure out Amazing why. Amazing pricing. Amazing pricing. Yeah, so we were doing that and then um, a little bit of sort of the gas chromatography and some of the liquid chromatography stuff that I, um, I don't know, I kind of helped him out with, but but just because of my background, I had done that before. And I honestly don't remember the history too much, but while I was looking for a job before then, I had met Sean Foster, who went back to Maryville. And then after a year at Sutter, I ended up going to work with him as an enologist there. And you were digging the wine science thing. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, actually, I think that was the thing is like I had gotten into Davis, but realized that the science side, while I liked it, was not the interesting part to me. It was actually the the craftsmanship side of it was the the part that I actually enjoyed doing. You felt like you were kind of producing something in a way. Yeah, exactly. And I think that the sort of, if I'm going to be, the great part about Sutter was that I was able to meet a bunch of different people. I met Christine Barb, who had this really interesting Southern Blanc program that I helped her out with. I met Dale Ritchie, who had this vineyard in Carneros that I helped work out with. So it was like Sutter in and of itself was what it was, but the sort of introduction to all these other things, you know, and, and also this would have been 2000, I guess it'd been 2006, you know, at that time in the Valley, if you worked for a place, you could just taste the place. So we would all, you know, me and a couple of our buddies after work would just go and taste three or four, five places and, you know, just kind of learning. And I think that part was, that's what I'm really grateful for is just sort of giving me the job and being, uh, giving me the access to all these, these other things. So you could go to other wineries and taste yeah, and yeah, you didn't have to pay the fees. No, no, not at all. And I, I hope that it's still that way, to be honest. Um, it's like a bartender who gets free drinks when he goes to another absolutely, bar. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, I think it's still like that way. I th think it's still like that, but it's not as open-minded. It was a way of like having to put it, maybe not in the greatest way in the world, but I think it was like a year long internship in a way. Like there was a lot of, you know, I started the WCT then, I was tasting all the time, and I, I felt like if I'm going to do this, and if I'm going to sort of get fully into production, I want to do it all the time. And uh, I spent a lot of time <laughs> tasting random stuff that was not white Zinfandel. <laughs> you know, taste a lot of white Zinfandel too. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but uh, I was able to focus on other things. So yeah. you went to Maryville, and how long were you there? I was at Maryville for, I think, almost seven years. And um, yeah, Maryville was great. I sort of kind of my first sort of winemaking job for sure. And uh, nothing but nothing but great things working with the crew. And, and, you know, I think the thing was is sort of, I was mainly down at Starmont and I think that sort of, which is the white wine, facility. which is yeah. White wine and their big, bigger production facility kind of. And I think sort of like learning the logistics side of things and learning the, um, you know, how to manage it. 3000 ton harvest or something that's that's there's probably a lot of moving parts there's so. a lot of moving parts you know and i think that that's something that for me from the more maybe sciencey background that was something that was really helpful and and the whole time i was doing lab stuff as well of course and and still trying to learn i'm sort of trying to yes i'm doing this one particular job but the job's not limiting my learning i'm trying to learn everything that i possibly can about <laughs> about wine at the time because every time I go to a, a winery, especially in California, I'm impressed by how much of the job is actually just logistics of moving things around on yeah. certain days. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that once you get above, I mean, it, it happens for smaller people too, but I think once you get above 500 tons, I think that a lot of what you do is visiting vineyards, picking, 
<laughs> knowing which tanks where, what barrels you're allocating and things like that. And I, you know, that doesn't mean that it's not romantic and you're not doing your job, but I mean, a lot of it does become what bucket am I going to put this in? <laughs> you know? Like you need to have your crates there on that day for Absolutely. the pickup. The, yeah. the guy's got to come with the truck. You right. got to move it. Right. And well, and it becomes one of those things where if you don't have it dialed in, then you know, anytime you're wasting during harvest costs you five times, <laughs> you know, more than, than would be any other time of the year. So having that sort of plan in place and the plan's not the right word, but maybe having the sort of strategy and style kind of figured out beforehand is important. And still, of course, being flexible enough to deal with whatever rain events are coming or how the fruit <laughs> looks or anything like that. But Because California is a big state and it's not always necessarily that model where you just open up the door and your vineyard's right behind you. Right, there. exactly. I, although I have to say at Starmont, for the most part, I was dealing with everything within, I don't know, 30 miles, something like that. It was actually credit to them. I mean, everything was kept pretty tight. So I don't think I had any vineyards more than an hour away at the most, hour and a half maybe. It's just that when I visited Munier Giborg in Burgundy recently, right. you walk out the door and you're Yeah, no. You know. No, it's not like that. Right. It's not like that. No, no. And 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 of course, in that particular situation, when you need pickers, you get you get pickers, right? You get you get your people to harvest. Like that's not an issue. As where in California, everybody's vying for the same labor pool, everybody's trying to organize trucking and like, you know, no, it it's it's a big operation. It's certainly more complicated than than that, I think, a lot of ways. Where did your interest start to take you when you were at Starmont? Where did you start to learn? Well, I guess the part that was most interesting to me was we did have an estate vineyard in Carneros there and and sort of focusing on that. And I think in 2007, 2008, I met my partners in Ultramarine and we had sort of been interested in sparkling wine at the time. Because Ultramarine is now your sparkling wine right. project. Right, exactly. And... um well, I met Ryan Bradley through the WCT and then can, maybe we call him Max Powers or something, but we met another guy. Uh, <laughs> Austin uh, Powers was the... Yeah, Max Powers. We'll, we'll give him a code name through uh, then as well. And we sort of got together and we were all interested in grower champagne at the time. I think probably Le Mondier was like our big guy there. So 07, 08, I don't know. Is that be 02 releases, 03, something like that? So you're starting to see grower champagne. We're starting in to see grower champagne. Absolutely. And you're like, hey, this stuff tastes good. This is amazing, right? And I think we sort of also were seeing, I don't want to say the the wane, that's probably going too far, but sort of the less exuberance about single vineyard Pinot Noir. I mean, if you remember back then, it was like everybody had, you know, their eight skews, all Pinot, all whatever. And I think at the time we were like, well, let's let's do this with sparkling wine. And um that proved to be a little harder than we thought. And um, what would be some of the challenges to making a spark? Right. So we wanted from the beginning to do it ourselves. And that was the big thing. And, um, and, and other people had done that before, certainly. But um, we wanted to do just that. And that equipment for small scale production doesn't exist here. <laughs> you know, we want a nice glass. Well, if you want nice glass, you have to get it from France. If you want to put nice glass from France in to a box, you have to build the box. If you want to cap it, it's a different size cap than because you're dealing with sparkling wine, right? Exactly. It, you could probably find nice glass yeah, in America that's for right. still wine. Absolutely, hundred percent. And then, um, but this gets a little nerdy. But you know, all of the sparkling glass in America is essentially 26 millimeter necks. We're using 29 millimeters, so we need to change our capper. We need to get different capsules. And yeah, there was a lot of sort of figuring out how to get there. So we did a couple of test batches um, in 08 and in 09 to try to kind of get our tirage down and all the sort of like machinations, I guess, of the the method Chemin And then our first production was in 2010 of that. And that was from Charlie Heinz's Vineyard. Who, that was your first choice to go with Chardonnay from Heights? Or? Yes. Well, we had looked at Pinot Noir... I think originally, my memory is a little fuzzy at the time, but originally we looked at Pinot Noir in Marin and Lakeville and and sort of, these are all sort of closer to San Francisco, I guess, places for, for those not familiar. And I had met Charlie through a client at Maryville. And um, I knew that they were not going to be using that fruit anymore. So I called up Charlie and said, hey, I'm curious in buying some fruit from you. And he said... 
we went up there, uh, Max Powers and I, and we, we talked a little bit with him and he goes, this seems kind of crazy, but, but sure, let's do it. And we did, and, and, and we did the we did Pinot Noir from him, which is the Rosé in the 2010, and then the, the Blanc de Blanc. Um, because he's known to have good food. I mean, like, literary makes wine. For yeah, him. absolutely. And uh, it's, no, it's an amazing site. And I think about it now, like, I don't know exactly why he agreed to do it with, <laughs> with us, because it would have been just as likely we would, you know, not be able to pay him, I guess. But uh, we paid on time, and uh, we've been working with him since, since then. I guess the part you're leaving out here is the part uh, where you opened a custom crust facility. Right, 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 right. And you started making ultramarine. Right, yeah. So we we got all the tirage stuff done ourselves. And um, What does that mean exactly? So you have your dry wine, right? And then you put it to bottle with a little bit of sugar and your yeast culture and all that. Ultramarine was always barrel fermented, always native yeast for the primary, but but you still have to do the actual method chimney and all that stuff. Doesn't that seem like you made it hard for yourself from the beginning? Like a champagne with barrel. You know, there's right. not so many people even in champagne that work with wood. Not so many people right. who do primary right. nat- native yeast. Right. Seems right. like you guys went to guns pretty early. Yeah, I think that was the whole project from the beginning, to be honest with you. It's like, if I'm going to be standing out there cutting plywood to make a tirage bin, then I'm going to make it hard all the way through. You know what I mean? And like, I think, to be honest, I think you're right. But to sort of deflect that on some level, I'll also say that Barrels are a very convenient thing to do if you're a small producer, right? And and getting a stainless steel tank, like we knew from the beginning, for example, that we didn't want to cold stabilize, we didn't want to, we didn't want to filter, we didn't want to do any of that stuff. So you know, barrels help that. You know, you get good settling, you get better stability from lees contact. You know, there's a lot of reasons historically why barrels have been used. So I'll grant your point, but I'll also say like there's some functional aspects to it as well. So we. You know, we still have those old barrels. I think those are probably 04s or something. <laughs> getting getting 11, 11 fills on them. Yeah, so we um, we got everything in bottle, but then we had to do something with it. And I had been at Maryville for a long time and sort of thought, you know, I'd like to do something else. So I started a custom crush facility in, I guess... It was open for the harvest of 2013. I don't know exactly, May. And why was that your decision? Why did you just decide to go um, that route? Well, yeah. So having kind of experienced a little bit of that through Maryville, like one of the things for me was that white wine kind of got the shaft when the custom crush experience is that generally people that were doing custom crush weren't very adept at doing white wine. They either had. And you see it as a big difference. I do think it. Yeah, absolutely. Is that for, well, let's say barrel fermented, right? So people are using, and this is, I'm not saying everybody's like this, but locally there was very few places that had big presses that were used to doing and monitoring barrel fermentations and all that other stuff. So for me, not that I'm any kind of killer businessman, but I, I just saw it as an opportunity. You saw that there was custom crush, but you thought most of it was set up for small production red wines. A hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. In, in fact, I would say that even now, if you wanted to make a five ton, 10 ton Chardonnay project at a custom crush facility locally, I'm not saying there's no place that can do it, but it's it's definitely a it's a harder thing to do than than you would think. And that's probably tied into that trend that you saw where everyone had their eight single vineyard Pinot Noirs. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think I think all of that is a let's say a you know, 5-year, 10-year downstream from that. Again, we're talking mainly Sonoma County here. Although Napa too. I mean, again, it's you switch Pinot for Cabernet and you're in the same boat, right? Maybe it all goes to the end blend, but at the end of the day, you want a custom crush place that's going to be able to do 15 one-ton lots or something like that, you know, and they don't really care if you have a, a an eight-ton whole cluster white press. That's just a waste of money for most people. But but anyway, that's what I want to do from the beginning. And the person who would use custom crush is a person who doesn't have their own winery facility. Right, exactly. So I think, I don't know, maybe not everybody knows that, but certainly in California, most of the small producers that are coming out here are are probably being made at a custom crush facility. And And that can mean a lot of different things. It can mean that People are, you know, more like a wine studio when everybody's doing the work themselves. It can be something in between that where some people are doing some work, but not all the work. It could be that you're directing the staff entirely. So um, you could be a guy who makes wine, but what you actually do is deliver grapes to a custom crush facility and then tell the employees of the custom crush facility what you'd like done with the fruit. Exactly. And then you check back in every so often to make sure it's going that way. Right. 100%. Yeah. So it's not like you're there every day, like stirring the leaves or something. No, not not normally. <laughs> not well. I mean, some people do that at my place, but not 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 too many. 
Um, normally, I have a really good group of clients, so I feel like we work really well together. But um, but yeah, I mean, for the most part, during harvest, most of those cats are tasting every other day, every day, and kind of, you know, telling me what they want to do and, and kind of guiding all of that, sort of. So a lot of a winemaker's gig would be to go out, source the fruit, right? set the contract, make sure it gets to the place on time, right? figure out what kind of right. barrels they want to use. Right. Well, and it certainly depends on the winemaker. I mean, certainly a lot of guys focus all their attention on vineyard, um, which I think is great. And they don't necessarily need to spend two hours topping, <laughs> right? They just need to tell me it needs to be topped and then I'll top it for them, you know? And one of the things that we did from the beginning was we wanted to be focused on barrel fermentation of whites. We wanted to have a full service lab. I'm not pitching. We're full. Don't. <laughs> but, but, uh, but, you know, we wanted to have all that stuff in place to make it such that winemakers would have an easier time sort of making whatever decisions they needed to make. And, and, you know, I don't think that takes the romance out of it too much, but I mean, like functionally everybody is that the huge capital cost is being, you know, delocalized amongst. Yeah, exactly. Whatever. 13 clients, 14 clients. It's like when you have a timeshare. Yeah, exactly. In Aspen or something. Right. Exactly. Okay. You're going to be in the cabin that week. And then I'm going to, as you know, you and I both have our timeshares in Aspen. (laughs) Well, you came on your private jet. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Exactly. Right. 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 My net jet. I flew over. Um, and, uh, but it's a similar idea. It's a similar idea. Except yeah, two people could be in there at the same time. Right. Exactly. And you're I think sharing facility. You're sharing the facility, and and I think in the case of well, you've seen it. I mean, my facility is not anything to speak of. It's just a big press, some tanks, and a very cold barrel room. That's basically it. So it seems like one of the most important things is a nice press. Yeah. I, well, for white wine, certainly. Yeah. I mean, I think most people would probably argue with me for anything else, but. But yeah, for me, I wanted to make it such that if you came to me and wanted to make five tons of Chardonnay, that we would not be taking a Euro press and slamming everything we can in there that, you know, and, and, and filling it to the brim and then ramming the door closed with the forklift or anything like that. No, we'll just put it in and press it and do whatever you want and go from there. And uh, yeah, so anyway, when we had the facility set up, at the time, I really didn't think I was going to do sparkling custom crush there at all. But I figured, well, I, since I have the space, let's move Ultramarine over there. And then once I kind of did that, I don't know who, I don't know who even found out that I was doing that stuff there, but somebody did. And then I started getting people asking me about doing sparkling wine there as well, which we do a little bit. Because there wasn't a lot of maybe sparkling wine for higher expertise. Yeah, no, there's certainly, I mean, certainly Rack and Riddle has been around a long time um, and they do a very good job, but it's, it's on a larger format. Let's put it that way. And where I think what we can do well, not only can we do it, we're forced to do it on a small <laughs> on a small scale. I mean, we don't have any real equipment to speak of. It's very basic stuff. And um, but kind of taking your cues from that artisanal champagne, absolutely, hundred percent, hundred percent. And I think the thing is, is like when it comes to sparkling wine, I think one of the interests for me personally has been the. It's a very method intense way of making wine, and I think that like I've always been whether it's science or winemaking or whatever, I've been interested in process, right? And I think that, I don't know that the method Chaminoise is necessarily unnatural. I don't know that I would go that far. But I do think that it is a, it's a little bit of a magic trick in a way. And I think that sort of like, the basics are simple. You add sugar and you add yeast, right? But once you actually start going into the details of what you're doing, that gets a lot more complicated. And sort of looking at what what one base wine needs versus another base wine or what one client wants it at this atmosphere, you know, however you're going to do that, that there's a lot of levers to play with, I guess. But as you're starting to play around, you're starting to see people come by being like, Hey, what are you doing? Right. Exactly. So essentially people were interested in doing it. And, and to be fair, I think that there was already, like I already knew about a few people making wine that way. Well, for example, I know it's, it's not exactly what we're doing, but like sea smoke was making their own sparkling, for a fair amount of time and brought all of their production in house starting with probably in 2013. I don't know exactly the exact date. Um, I mean, BV used to make a sparkling wine right. back in the day. That was pretty tasty. Actually, Well, it's funny. So Maryville did too, actually. And I cannot, hadn't like they had a brand name still registered for it too. And I honestly don't remember. It was like symphony or something. And there was a guy up in clear Lake that did it or Lake County. I shouldn't say clear Lake. I don't know exactly where he was who sort of, you know, he had a, a couple of gyro pallets and, 
and did that kind of stuff. And then I think Domain Shandon may have helped out a few guys down the road prior to being maybe as corporate as they are. But um, Because, of course, there are these larger... Yeah, of course, of course. I think, And I think there is like a pretty strong history going maybe not all the way back to 100 years, but certainly 50 plus for, you know, the Schramsberg of the world and and Rotterdam Estate, more recent. I mean, most of the French guys are more recent, Rotterdam Estate and Domaine Chandon, Mum. But still, you know, 30, 40 years of, of making sparkling wine. But again, kind of coming from it through the, the Grand Marc kind of way of looking at things, which is something that we weren't interested in, but also functionally couldn't, <laughs> couldn't do either. Do you know what I mean? But you started to take up some of the attributes of someone like Cedric Bouchard or Prevost, right. where you're like, oh, single vineyard, right. single vintage, right. exactly. single grape variety. Exactly. The focus really was, well, I think the grand idea was to have more places, like I said. But I think that once we got Charlie on board, it was a question of sort of saying, here's this really strong site. And even in the base one, and and... You know, I wish I could have brought some of the 2010 Von Claire if we still had some. But like even in that base one, you could tell. I mean, this is at a pH of like 2.9, 10% alcohol, right? You could taste that and go, oh, it it tastes like, it tastes similar to what Literite was doing or William Sellium was doing in the same time period. Do you know what I mean? From that site. And so for us, we're just sort of, just maybe kissing it. Just a little augmentation in terms of the, in terms of the sparkling process. And that was, that was the key with that site. And the people that were really influential, certainly like Marie Noelle LeDrew with like the Alavole and like all the handwork. I mean, she was probably the most influential in terms of that. I didn't know Provo or Savar at the time, but certainly now that I have met them and <laughs> hung out with them on a small level, like certainly they're in, influential. Le Mondier, certainly. Um, because you've been to Champagne now. Yeah, yeah. We've been to Champagne a couple times now. And um, um, what's that like? Champagne's crazy. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, that's not the right way to put it, but like for me, it's like a spa treatment. I just, I'm super inspired, relaxed, stoked every time I get come back from there and sort of seeing what people are doing and tasting what they're doing. And I think that's the issue is like, you don't, you know, sometimes again, doing what we're doing out here, we're not in a vacuum anymore, but there's this element of feeling like you're in a vacuum. And then when you get over there and you taste some of those Von Clairs and sort of see what they're doing, see how they're riddling, disgorging and all that stuff. I think you do get a sense of like, oh no, this is, we're not doing the same thing, but certainly we're all in the same family here, you know? So you're saying that where you make wine, the industrial park across from the Toyota dealership <laughs> near the freeway, <laughs> the Asian place that sells donuts in the morning. Right, exactly. You're saying that like you don't every place in California. see a lot of, lot of people being like, hey man, I just hand riddled this. Right, no, not a lot. A lot of brewers, but yeah, not a lot of... Uh, yeah, you went with Toyota dealership instead of Lagunitas. I'm uh, shocked. But anyway. Well, there was a speaker place around the right, corner. Right, right, yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mesa Boogie speaker place. <laughs> like the most famous one. <laughs> Dropping deuces on Petaluma. Um, I'm yeah, just no, saying. Of no, of no, no, I'm no, not. 100%. I'm just saying. To you, yeah, you probably feel like you're in a vacuum. Yeah, 100%. But, but I mean, I think it's not just. Like when you go through the drive-thru and she asks you if you want an extra patty on that. <laughs> You're probably not like, hey, you know, I got some questions I wanted to shoot off you. Did you? <laughs> Have you ever thought about carrying a high-end sparkling wine from California, single vintage, single vintage? Yeah. What uh, was the pH on that right, second patty? Right. Yeah. No. Um, you never went to the aquarium with us, did you? No. No. Kind of wish. Yeah, you kind of have to. Uh, one of my all-time favorites, this obviously cut this up, but the one of my all-time favorites was when Hardy opened up a bottle of uh, the Bouchard Meunier. I forget what the name of it is, but at the aquarium and they're like oh champagne cool so they bring out these goblets that are the flattest fucking things you've ever seen and they're dinner plates you know and we're drinking this bottle and like you know while guys are eating tripe and i don't know chili burgers it's uh, amazing um yeah no yes it's a vacuum in, in a way like i don't mean from a wine i mean i wasn't speaking specifically to petaluma i was speaking more winemaking generally is that you can't have for example, uh, most of the equipment we get, we bring in ourselves, uh, or I bring in myself. And I think that, you know, you can call up Colapac and sort of like see if they would bring that stuff in for you. But, you know, for a guy who's only going to spend a small amount of money on stuff, <laughs> getting used secondhand doses or, or dosing machines 
to the US, it's not an easy process, you know? So, so that's really what I mean. And I think functionally, there's this interesting part about our culture, maybe in winemaking, but I think it can apply more generally, like where we look at a labor input and we go, that's just too much work. Like it's no point in doing it because there's just too much work. And that's how people think of like hand reeling or hand disgorging and stuff. That's and how I think of your whole project, <laughs> to be honest with you. I think there's some truth to it. On We've already level. kind of broached this. Right, right, like, right, right. Yeah, bro, you started, sort of made it hard for yourself. Right. No, I think there's true. But I think, you know, again, maybe I think of it, first off, maybe I'm delusional. But I think second off, you know, from the beginning, we really thought of it from the point of view of, well, if we plan this out, then, yeah, okay, maybe we have to hand riddle everything. Maybe have to hand disgorge everything. But really, you know, it's only a couple hours a day. You know what I mean? You know so, when I've taken that attitude? What, when, the, when I'm trying to break into a bank. <laughs> you know, if we really planned this out, I mean, we wouldn't have to worry too much about the police, you know. All we have like, are spoons. Infrared and an old sensors. Brick wall. Right, right. Like, right let's right. just do this. Right. You know, it'll be fun and challenging. Right. My yeah. my wine project is essentially the great escape. <laughs> and we're taking dirt and putting it in our pants and taking it out to the yard. Don't say you don't like pull wheelies on the motorcycle in the parking it's lot now and again. Pre- it's so. pretty much true. Yeah, no, I um jumping over the wall no i think uh, it seems silly to say this but i think with planning it's we get so concerned culturally about the the labor input right and that really if you just take a deep breath it's not that much work you know it really isn't i mean you know marie noelle drew does you know her entire production by herself with one helper and by the way, does all the vineyard stuff too. Oh, right? I thought you were going to say all the cats. Right, right. And by the way, <laughs> and, at and least five or six cats. Uh, five or six. How dare you? It's <laughs> probably eight to 12. Um, no, but you know, I mean, there's something to be said about that. And I don't yeah, know. Yeah, but she, she's in Champagne. There's an infrastructure for this. Sure. Sure, but I mean... She's, she's going to the cafe and talking to other people who do this. Yes, and that's the big difference. Yeah, I agree with you on that. But I mean, the work is still the same work, right? And, and I think that like, why am I convincing you that my job makes sense? <laughs> but yeah, no, I agree with you. I think I think there's some element of like, you look at her and this is what I think about. I think about the fact that, um, I don't know how old she is, but she's doing 5,000 cases, 7,000 cases, some, not much more than that. But let's say it's 5,000. She's doing all that work by hand with her helper. And then in February, driving out to the vineyard, which is a little far away, not super far away, but a little far away. And then, pruning that herself too you know what i mean and like i'm not doing that right so you know i'll grant you it's a lot of work but you know i'm my assistant winemaker charlie's out there riddling some stuff right now as we speak so when you go to champagne how do they treat you i mean when you're like hey uh how do you uh do that i don't think that is an interesting question uh I don't think anybody actually assumes that i really make wine oh okay yeah i don't think that that's actually i mean i think they go oh um sure you do right exactly yeah you just said that to get the appointment right 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 that's basically it i mean you know i'll talk to on my very brief talks with ensemble slows i think he was probably the guy who actually gave me the time of day more than anybody else which i have to say i'm beyond grateful for but for the most part guys answer my questions very politely but sort of don't assume they sort of assume i don't actually know what the hell i'm doing which is is quite right actually (laughs) But I've seen like <laughs> bottles with writing on it uh-huh. and stuff like that. I mean, right. like inscriptions. Right, right, right. Yeah. Notations. Yeah, no, I, I definitely um, I have that bottle that I stole from Anselm that he wrote on that I was like, uh, he was like, give this to, uh, give this to uh, Chartoni. I was like, yeah, cool. I showed it to Alex. I was like, take a picture of this. And then I stuck it in, <laughs> in the car because I'm like, I'm not letting that go. That's mine now. But yeah, no, I mean, I think for the most part, I, uh, the questions that I ask are pretty pretty general because i think honestly the detailed questions like you know what percentage of riddling aid you're going to use or something like that generally speaking and this is a cultural thing too this might be too much inside baseball but there's there's a cultural thing in france too where like even for guys who do experiment a lot generally if the status quo is working the status quo is working and and there's no sort of like you know if you talk to and i don't know if you did but if you talk to alex from about adding sulfur to to the dosage he'll be like why would i do that that's his answer his answer is not like oh i tried that i don't kind of like that you know whatever it's like no why would i do that okay cool reasonable i mean i'm not complaining about the product at all so 
what can I say? It'd be like going to your local croissant place and ordering a pretzel just because exactly. you wanted that, to like mix it up. I mean, there's some there's some element of that. There's some element too of I think that I don't think that the sort of Anglo-Saxon model of trying to perfect everything for the sake of perfection exists in that type of winemaking. If that's not being overly culturally insensitive, but I think I think we don't respect the cultural divide very well, and I do think there's some elements of why would I do that thing? This is the way everybody's done it prior to me. It works just fine. I'm not going to be rocking the boat on that. But at the same time, you're talking about one of the guys who's done the most possible changes that is agreed family estate. I mean, a hundred totally yeah. 180 changed the place. A hundred percent. But he's doing that on the basis of his experience at a very particular place, right? It's not that he did that de novo. And I think that's the big difference is that I think that, and, and trust me, this is to a fault. I think in America, we want to reinvent the wheel every time, you know, we want to throw the baby out with the bathwater every time a new winemaker comes. And I'm sure you've seen this over your career. Like a new guy comes in, first thing he does is throws out all the old shit and says the way we were doing it was wrong. The barrels we were using was wrong, whatever. Obviously, if you're not hiring a winemaker, but rather your son is taking over the estate, that normally doesn't happen on that level. And also, there's less of a pressure to change things in the grand scheme. My point being is that with, with a guy like Chautagne, he's not coming about that from nothing. That comes from Solos. That comes from his experience in that group. And, um, and I think what's really interesting in his work is probably the vineyard the vineyards are more interesting than, than anything else. I, whatever, personally speaking, I think. Um, I think that's right. Having yeah. talked to him, I think that's yeah. probably true. And I think that that sort of, that's where he really is a, a leader in that regard. And I think that part is, um, that's amazing. But that for him is reaching back to an older style that had preexisted. But you're working on a California model where a lot of times there's a winemaker and then there's a vine tender. Exactly. And yep. those are two different jobs. Right. Right. I mean, we're not big enough to have a viticulturalist, right? So you're looking at the viticulturist, I guess. But but yeah, for the most part, the winemaker is the winemaker who is a separate thing that is doing just the winemaking. I mean, metal de chez would be like probably the closest thing. But like, yeah, like I've heard this on your podcast eight times, but there's no word for winemaker in French, you know? So again, from our sort of Anglo-Saxon model, we're trying to sort of give us a job, right? We're trying to say what we're doing makes sense. And uh, and to do that, we change, we we mess around, we play with stuff. So what surprised you on your messing around with Ultramarine as a sparkling wine project? What was like, ah, oh, didn't expect that, didn't see that coming? Maybe the most interesting thing was probably pressing. I think that, that that's probably the thing that we have played around with the most and sort of not doing anything particularly different from the French, but sort of like looking at individual. So what, what we do is we'll, we'll take the barrels and we'll lay down all the barrels and we'll fill directly to barrel so that every individual barrel is a press cut. Again, making stuff harder on ourselves. So then, as it comes through the press, yeah. you barrel it down. Exactly. So, so I, every individual barrel is a different part of that press. Yeah. Let's call cycle. it time point in the press cycle. Right. right. So as we're doing that, that stays pure throughout the still wine process throughout the Von Clair process. And I think in doing that, sort of seeing all the little differences, not just numeric, I mean, not just the pH and TA, but, but just the flavor profile differences have been really interesting. Another thing for us that we've done is kind of, because we don't have, we can't necessarily just buy syrup, right, for making the dosage liquor. We can't, well, we can buy concentrate. But, you know, those things are not on the shelf. Making up your own syrup and making up your own dosage liquor, like that stuff is seeing how you play with that. And that's very vague, but by sort of focusing on not diluting the base wine, that type of thing, I think helps to sort of create something that is, I think, probably strongly Californian or a little bit more concentrated in the core of it. And I think that's the thing is like, I, I like all of the sort of, I want that wine to be recognized as having its roots in champagne. But I also want it to be recognized as a California wine, of course. So you're dealing with California food and you can taste that. Yeah, I think so. I think it comes across as more assertive and maybe more assertively, maybe not more assertively Chardonnay in the case of the Blanc de Blanc, but I think it comes off as very assertively Heinz. The rosé is a little bit different. Um, I think that comes off as very assertively Pinot Noir. 
maybe not so much Heinz, but I think that the, the, all the character that you expect from that Rosé or from Pinot Noir, I think comes out pretty strongly there. So at the same time, you're also doing pet net projects, right? So we did a few pet net projects in the first year in 2013, and then we've done a few this year as well. One for my, for myself, which is a separate company, but cruise wine company, all that fun stuff. And, uh, we did one from Valier, which I really like. I mean, pet nets are sort of interesting. I feel like they're sort of the, you know, the soup du jour, <laughs> right? I mean, it's a very a popular thing, but I think that there's a lot of room for, for really defining that style and making it something, I don't want to say serious, but really stretching. The, the interesting part for me about that is like, okay, here's pet nets, here's method champenoise. We know what the differences are. One, has sugar added, one has yeast added, one has nothing added, right? Um, we have one gets oxidized on the storage period prior to the, the tirage, one doesn't, one's, you know, as fresh as harvest, whatever. So again, with the sort of lever analogy, you have all these different things going on. What I'm sort of interested in big picture is, can we make a pet nat that is as serious as a method champenoise one? Again, whether or not that... I don't know even that, that that's something that we should do, <laughs> but it's something that interests me because I like a lot of the pet nets that have come out of the Loire. I've had a little bit more issue with what's come out domestically, not, not in any kind of bad way, but I, I think that sometimes I wonder why that went through, why somebody spent the time to do a pet net in the first place. We're, it's very hard <laughs> to do one correctly. And for us, we want it to be dry. We want it to have lots of, CO2. Um, we want it to be not perfectly clear, but you know, we don't want it to be sludgy, kind of. We don't want it to explode all over the place. And um, what's the fun of that, bro? Right, exactly, exactly. We want you to have a movia like volcano every time you open the thing. <laughs> if it's yeah. not on the ceiling, right, it wasn't exactly. really here. Yeah, right, right, right. Did you Instagram a picture of your ceiling afterwards? You didn't? Sorry, bro. Um, you don't get your allocation next year. No, I think that. In a way, it's a different technique, and I think it's one that's ripe for sort of playing around with. I sound so lame, but but I think that there's this element of like, let's see where we can go with this, you know. And, and uh, that's cruise territory. Let's see where we can let's go. Let's see with where this. we can go with this. Totally right, right. cruise control, oh, man. Hardy and I together. It's bad news, man. It's bad news. But yeah, no, I think that. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, true. <laughs> and what have you learned so far? Um, I think that. Well, one of the things that we wanted to try this year is sort of introducing some element of carbonic. Um, this was in a Valdegate. We had plenty of acid. It wasn't a big issue. But I think by sort of maybe more generically, we could say that sort of helping the fermentation as best as we can, right? So for what we're trying to do, we're trying to get it all done in, let's say, two weeks, three weeks during harvest. We're not trying to say freezing the thing and then waiting till December and letting it go mainly because we haven't tried it to be honest and sort of like helping the fermentation along maybe a little carbonic to help picking earlier I mean I think that that's a big thing picking sub 20 bricks picking as if it was a method Cheminois. and hitting at the right time monitoring the hell out of it and um and then from there on out sort of treating it exactly like it was method Cheminois. so giving it a fair amount of time entourage same amount of time riddling. In fact, it takes a lot longer to riddle pet nets because you don't have any of the, A, there's more, and B, stuff hasn't settled out that you would have settled out in barrel. Yeah, and just trying to trying to tighten the whole process up. Because again, in sort of like little soldiers marking it, <laughs> marching into the ocean, like there's not a lot of folks that were like, oh yeah, do it this way. <laughs> you know, plenty of other guys were doing it. But I think sort of focusing on trying to make it better is kind of where we're at. Have you seen a different experience with different grape varieties into the pet nap process? I can't say that I have enough experience to say that. I would say that I have experience with, I think, three varieties now, four varieties now. And I think... Kind of diverse, though. Reds, whites, semi on Pretty diverse, pretty diverse, pretty diverse. And I think that like having, being careful about Again, maybe we're going back to pressing, but I think being very careful about pressing, you know, sort of taking the cuvee cuts, you know, 
again, as I'm saying this out loud, I'm realizing that your point about making things hard, like, you know, it's, I, I think that the original idea is to turn around something really quickly at a pretty high yield. Right. And make some money. Something and make like some money. Andrea Kellick was here. Right. <laughs> he was like, <laughs> right. you know, I did this right. because I wanted to make some dough right. while I was waiting for my other stuff right. to do its thing so I and, can sell it later. And clearly he's a much smarter man than me <laughs> because now I'm taking, I'm, I'm realizing as I'm saying it out loud here that like actually I'm doing everything the wrong way. But no, I think the idea of like, sort of cutting your yield a little bit to keep that kind of acidity really high. And, and um, I think those are generic sort of Chepinois ways of doing things. So maybe that's the the truth of it. But yeah, I'm, I'm very curious to do more of them. I think the jury's kind of, one of the differences I see is that there are plenty of varieties in California that are reasonably ripe at 18 bricks. You know what I mean? And I think that like, there's an element to actually showcase fruit at that level. And if you can sort of get your get your method without sounding totally geeky about it, but if you get your method kind of dialed in, the ability to sort of showcase those vineyards and showcase that fruit, I think I think it's ripe in something like Petna. I think that's a possibility. And you do make some reds. I make some reds too. And uh, yeah, so we do. Apparently against your will. <laughs> They're too easy to make? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, you mean I don't need a special press? Right, right, like, right, we're not right, going right, to, you know. Right. No, from the beginning, I did want to do some cruise wines that were sort of, I don't know, it seemed crazy to call them table wines, but the idea was really that drinkable wines. I mean, that's that's the key. And one of the things that, um, you know, kind of John Bonet and the New California, you know, all that stuff and talking about like how cheap wine in California that's being made by people doesn't really exist. And, and, uh, certainly I wouldn't say that the cruise wines are cheap per se, but I did want to make something because as Hardy says, I hate making money and I hate my family. I did want to make something that was like reasonably priced, but still from vineyards that I've known for a long time that I thought were interesting and, and kind of sort of see where that goes and, and make wines as simply as I possibly can and just really showcase vineyards that I thought were really cool, to be honest. And where has that taken you? So far, so good. Um, we did just two varieties in 2013. We did five in 2014. And um, they've been very well received. And um, We did a Val de Gay from um, Rancho Chimiles, which is out in one valley, and a Syrah from Charlie Heinz's vineyard. And then um, did a little bit of Chardonnay from Rorick's vineyard this year. And their the pet nat will come under that as well and uh yeah so far so good and i like them i think they're they're uh they're interesting wines and drinkable wines tell me a little bit about val de gay yeah so val de gay formerly napa gamay um, formerly known as formerly known as napa gamay yeah people used to say this is gamay and then one day they realized it wasn't yeah exactly and and i would say that in my lifetime i don't know that i was ever around wine where people called it gamay but it was very common to call it napa gamay i'm not saying people didn't call it gamay but just saying in my experience most people called it napa gamay and uh it's apparently from the south of france and uh but it was planted a lot in the late 60s early 70s you know mandavi thought it was going to be the next big thing and uh at that time early seventies, it was more expensive than cab by, you know, 10, 15%. Um, what about it might've made it the next big thing? I mean, you know, I, I would love to pick somebody's brain on that. I think that it was a, in a way, kind of like a Sauvignon Blanc of, of its day, sort of where it was kind of all going in mainly carbonic, almost entirely carbonic. It's, it, it sends out these huge clusters with these berries that are really, intact you've seen them of course and uh they were uh, um very easy to pick the the vine set pretty well and they make a very very fruity pleasing wine i don't do carbonic on them i think that there's enough tannin to actually kind of forego that and make something maybe just a hair more serious but the the pet nut is carbonic and that's from valdegate too so yeah it's a it's a great little grape i it's out of favor now Although it seems to be coming back. I think you see it. Brock makes one. Brock makes one. Yeah, absolutely. That's from Sassoon, which is not that far away from um, this vineyard. And Roccioli made one, or still does. 
uh, that's quite good. And uh, yeah, it's a pretty little wine and a pretty little grape. And I think it'll be interesting. It keeps its acid really well. It seems sort of like a perfect, a perfect little counterpoint to a lot of the stuff being made in Napa now. And in, probably the vines have some age on them. The vines almost always have age. Yeah, absolutely. So they, I don't think anything's been planted since the 80s of Valdigay. I might be wrong on that, but I think for the most part. Certainly not in Napa. In Napa, there's only maybe 40 tons last year was harvested. The vineyard I work with has maybe a quarter of that. So we're getting a fair, <laughs> we're getting a fair amount of it. Yeah, I'd love to see it start getting... I don't know that anybody would replant it in Napa, but I'd like to see it see some sort of resurgence in California because it's a very it's a very blue collar working class grape for sure. Do you see yourself as a blue collar working class winemaker? Uh, 100%. <laughs> yeah, 100%. I mean, I think that's the uh I feel out of place, you know, walk around New York for sure. Being on a podcast, <laughs> being on a podcast and talking to you about my shitty wines. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, what is not appealing to you about the white collar winemaker world? Um an amazing question i think what's okay so i think what's really interesting to me i'll rephrase it and say what's interesting to me about the blue collar world i guess is that i like the craftsmanship of this i like the trade element of it um i know people talk about artistry and wine and certainly that's a part of it but i think it's artistry in the same way that a cabinet maker is an artist or a furniture maker is an artist is that you have a set of things that you can do and in those set things, and in those that craftsmanship, the perfecting of your craft is, in fact, the art. And the workmanship is, in fact, the art. And I think that what does that mean for a guy like me? Well, you know, I can't afford fancy barrels. I can't afford fancy equipment. I can't afford buying Cabernet at 12,000 tons an acre. And I think probably my wines are better for that because you have to figure out a way around that, of course. But I like knowing and working with a group of guys that are all making the wine themselves. And I think that, that that's a big part of it. I don't want to go so far as to say it's more authentic because I, what does that mean? But I, but I feel like when I am in New York and meeting a sommelier, like I, feel very, I feel very confident giving him that wine or her that wine knowing that that came from my hand. Whether or not she likes it, I don't particularly care in a way you know but how much are you rebelling against the previous michael cruz like the guy who worked right. at the big wineries and the lab yeah and- I, that's an interesting way to put it I, I don't know that i'm rebelling so much it's just that i've never been any different do you know what i mean i've always been about this part has always been there do you know what i mean it's just been sort of the opportunity to do it you know one could say oh okay well you've only been doing one vintage of cruise wine company okay true but the previous nine vintages that I did are all a part of that, right? Do you know what I mean? And I think that like I view when I was working at Sutter as perfecting my craft just as much as Maryvale, just as much as what I'm doing now, you know? And I think that, yes, it's true that I was writing work orders and telling other people to do stuff. That doesn't mean that that wasn't sort of informing the actual craft that I do now. Have the economics of winemaking changed in the time that it's been your career? Have you seen things go up, down, down, and up? Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's coming back for sure. But when I think about the amount of money that was sort of around prior to 08, like, it was crazy. I mean, again, we're talking mainly Napa here. But the amount of money that was sort of, and and, and certainly it still is. It still is. But, but there was at least a, a softening of that. And I don't, I mean, I love Napa. There's, I'm not criticizing Napa. It's just that there's, it's hard to, it's hard to overstate how much money drives that part of the industry. And prior to 2008, it was the halcyon days where it was crazy. You know, you go to Unified and it would be like a three-day bender, you know. Now I think things are, a, well, like everything, right? But I think things are toned down a little bit more. And I think that coming out of that, you know, maybe there are now more guys that are focused on craft and are focused on individual projects and individual artistry in a way that I'm not saying that they didn't have before, but I think it was, it was maybe harder to do before people were less interested in those wines. So what about your future? I mean, what does it look like to try to sell what I can only imagine are somewhat expensive sparkling wines from California made in a grower champagne model? Right. 
in the market? In, does it scale? Do you make money on this? Is this the last time anyone's going to see you before the creditors come? <laughs> well, I think, I think we've bootstrapped enough, so I don't think we need to worry about creditors too much. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know, to be honest. I would love to see Ultramarine get up to eh, one or two vineyards more, you know, three vineyards, four vineyards, something like that. And, and just kind of sit steady, steady state there. I, I don't think it's something that scales. I mean, truthfully, like, you know, you look at a guy like Baresh, he has to do a lot of other sort of things to get to the scale of where he is. Right. And, um, for me, I, I, I think we're probably limited to, you know, a thousand cases, a couple thousand cases, something like that. I mean, how much high end sparkling wine can the market absorb? That's an incredibly interesting enough so that I don't have a problem selling it right now. <laughs> um, I think that you've done well in sales. So far. I think we've done very well. Yeah. I think, I think everything's been okay so far. But Do once it, the novelty factor runs it, off. Yeah. hundred percent. I'm absolutely petrified. Thank you for bringing up like my biggest fears. Yeah. No, I think that uh, for me, the idea of blowing something up to five, 10,000 cases, even if we could sell it, I have a problem with sort of, what that means long-term. I don't want it to be, I want people to respect the brand and what we're doing and sort of, I want to be dependable. Do you know what I mean? I want to be a long-term player in, in this and I want people to recognize what we're doing and feel comfortable in spending that money. I mean, that's the big thing, right? Is like, if somebody is going to spend the type of money on ultramarine that they're going to spend, I want them to not regret that at all, you know? And know that I've touched that bottle 50 times, 100 times to like make sure that they don't regret it um, and put a lot of time in it. So, so that's the long-term vision for that is I don't want it to be overly novel, right? I want it to be good on the basis of being good, not good on the basis of being cool, right? And why the name Ultramarine? So originally that was a couple different ideas. I mean, the main thing is that it's close to the ocean, truthfully, and sort of like, you know, with the label and the fish skin and stuff, we're just trying to point out being in the Western Sonoma coast. The other thing, and this is sort of a little more esoteric, but ultramarine as a dye prior to synthetic dyes was one of the dyes that was one of the hardest to work with. Um, oh, what was, a surprise. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It was didn't a unique, see that one coming. Didn't see that one coming. Right. It was a, it was a unique dye. It was the only one that sort of got that color. There was no substitute for it. And it was, um, I liked that element to that and that to be fair that was mainly ryan bradley that kind of came up with that but that was the big issue for us is sort of like recognizing that we're about place but also sort of recognizing the technique on some level too a lot of times with grower champagne there's a spectrum of how oxidized a wine should taste right like some people more some people less right right, right, right what does michael cruz like to taste personally with ultramarine or just generally I mean, what's the vision for you there? Yeah, I like oxidation on some level. I'm not, I'm not sure that I know enough to work in the Solos or Provoke camp of that, but I like a little oxidation. Like that, that sort of, I think it helps to let some of the vineyard out in a way. I think when it's overly reductive, I think you get a lot more of the brioche, you get a lot more of those elements, but I think that maybe the actual vineyard points get, trampled a little. <laughs> um, so if you're, again, if you're buying the bottle and you're seeing Heinz in the label, I want to make sure that that's coming out. I have been really interested. That, that's, that's a long-term project, but I'd be really interested in playing around more with oxidative sparkling wine. That's a, that's something that just, I think about it all the time. Um, I don't think Ultramarine is a project for it, but I, I do think about that all the time. If I were to get a few bottles of Ultramarine, uh-huh. Which, by the way, you haven't given me. <laughs> no, no problem. Right, right, right. How should I handle them? Do I do I open them? Do I sit on them? Do I decant them? Do right. I serve them with food? Do I right. drink them as a pair of teeth? Do um, I serve them really cold? Yeah. Well, I wouldn't serve them super cold. And I mean, you know, this is always the the question, right? I love the idea of sitting on wine as long as you possibly can. But at the same time, I also never do that myself, right? So if you're going to open it relatively soon. Uh, give it a good decant. I think that's probably the most helpful just because I think, especially the Blanc de Blanc, the Rosé, maybe that's not so necessary. Well, the Blanc de Blanc, I think it's important to kind of 
it's pretty tight wine right now. And I think it's important to kind of let some of that out and uh, give it a little bit of air, probably let some of the bubbles come out too. It has plenty of bubbles. You'll be fine decanting it. You know, I'm not the biggest flute hater in the world. I know there's people that hate flutes. I would just say that, you know, if your nose can fit in it, then you're probably good. <laughs> you're talking to me right now, yeah, though? I'm talking, look, <laughs> that's a big aperture, us, my both, friend. Both of us at the table, we're, <laughs> let's, let's be honest. For Levy and I, we're not talking about flutes. We're talking about tulips. Uh, but, uh, but for people who knows this can fit in flutes, you know, that's fine. I, I, I think a very nice, small white wine glass. I'm perfect. talking about a beer stein. Right, exactly. <laughs> right. We, we hit up boots, basically. Pour a <laughs> bottle of Ultramarine in a boot, and then you're good. No, I think that uh, a white wine glass, I like it probably colder than most because honestly, I like at the table, I like it warming up and sort of kind of going on that journey with it. So I don't, I don't mind a nice bucket on it. Again, with the rosé, I think there's probably more flex in that. That wine's a little bit more generous and kind of easy to love. I think the Blanc de Blanc is a little bit of a harder boy right now. And yeah, I mean, you know, we write the disgorgement date on everything, I think, Probably I would recommend three months post disgorgement at least. But, you know, if you want to try opening it afterwards, of course, you're going to be hard. Good luck. Um, but but I mean, if if it's tight, why release it now? Is there some reason that you... Yeah, I mean, 100%. Like, I would love to let it sit for six months. But this is already the 2010 vintage. So we've been sitting on it for five years and it's much easier for us to sit on it entourage than for the consumer to sit on an entourage. So let me put it a different way. I think it's better for us to get that extra tirage age on it for the consumer and then having the consumer sit on it for a month or two if they want post disgorgement than for us to release it six months earlier disgorged, right? I think that extra time is more important, especially with the 2010 vintage. I mean, in, in, in warmer years like 2013 or 2014, maybe not so much, but I think in the cooler years, 2010, 2011, that extra tirage is very important to that wine. So if we were looking out 10 years from now, right? what's going to make Michael Cruz happy? A nice, stable sparkling. Uh, I would love Cruz Wine Company to be those red wines and those still wines anyway, those to be trusted by the consumer, you know, knowing that, okay, that's going to be something that's going to be drinkable. And just to have a a stable business with a few few clients that I like working with and uh, be left alone in my cave uh, right next to the Toyota plant. <laughs> no, but honestly, like just being just, just a stable business and, and getting to come out here and, and hang out with some people in New York some people in San Francisco and sign of like meet consumers. And, uh, and that's really what it's all about is kind of interacting with everybody and kind of seeing, you know, I joke about the cave thing because I like being in it, but, uh, but yeah, kind of, kind of keeping a nice production schedule and, and going that way. Michael Cruz of Cruz Wine Company and Ultramarine. He likes to make it hard, but with a high enough pH. Thank you very much for being here today. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Love <laughs> Michael Cruz of Ultramarine and the Cruz Wine Company. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.